So we are uh, in John chapter 21 today, John chapter 21, and um, we are uh, finishing up this series called uh, The Gospels. We've been journeying through the Bible together as a church, and um, these last seven weeks we spent uh, reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so this is the last sermon in that series. We're going to get into the book of Acts next week, and then into the epistles, and it'll be a good time, but um, I want to give us a little context to John chapter 21. Uh, The first verse of John 21, it says, after this, you know, Jesus revealed himself, and so after this, what happened before this John 21? Well, last week we studied the suffering of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. So he was crucified, died, buried for three days, rose on the third day. He appeared to Mary and some other women. He appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared to Thomas because Thomas missed the first appearance and had that sweet moment with Thomas where he says, here's my hands and the scars and see, it's me. It's really me. Well, then he tells the disciples to go to Galilee, wait for him there, and he will meet them in Galilee. And so that's where we pick up. The disciples are waiting around in Galilee, waiting for Jesus to come and and reveal himself to them. And Jesus then restores Peter after Peter has uh, denied Christ. And so we're in John 21. We're going to be in the first 19 verses We're going to read it, and then we will pray and unpack it together, okay? So are you ready at John 21? Okie dokie. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, so they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, that you are among us and you're in us. Father, I thank you for your word to us. I pray that you would speak today. That you'd guide me as I seek to rightly divide the word of truth, that I would only say what you're saying, God, and that you'd give us understanding. I pray that you'd restore us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I heard a story this week of an of a, um, Amish farmer, older man, and his son. They had spent their whole lives on the farm, never really going anywhere. And then one day they decided to go to, into town, went into the mall. This is the first time they've ever experienced this. So this father and son, they're, they're amazed by everything they are seeing. And uh, until they get to this space where these silver walls open up and lights flicker above them. And they close back and they're like, what? magic is this as these walls just open up and close and as they're enamored by this wall that's moving they see this older lady with her walker as the the walls open up she walks inside slowly into this little room and the walls close in behind her the lights flicker over her the walls open back up and out comes this young attractive woman the father's like, he grabs the son, he says, quick, go get your mother. <laughs> Today I want to talk about restoration. Restoration. Power. We're at the end of the Gospel of John, and at the end of any good story, there is a summary, really, of the main themes of the story. I don't do very well conclusions very well in my sermons, but that's how it's supposed to be. At the conclusion of a story, you summarize what happened in the body of the story, and, and that's what's happening here in the book of John. In this last chapter, what we see is that he begins to allude to a lot of events that occurred throughout the rest of the book. This week's passage is actually the application of last week's passage. See, last week we studied the suffering of Christ 
and the cross of Christ and what He went through to purchase our salvation. And this week, we see uh, Christ's forgiving um, power and His restoration power that is made possible by the cross of Christ. So last week we saw Him purchase our salvation. This week we see Him apply that to our lives, or specifically to the life of Peter. Let's talk about restoration. The first thing we see in the process of restoration is that Jesus meets us in our failure. Jesus meets us in our failure. Let's go back verse by verse, 21 verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, those are the sons of thunder, they would call them. Two other disciples were together, and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went and got out in the boat, um, but that night they caught nothing. And so it says that they're at the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. We see that in chapter 6, verse 1. Um, so this is the Sea of Galilee. It's a very uh, prominent sea body of water in the ministry of Jesus. We, at this sea, the Sea of Galilee, it's where he called his first disciples. This is where Jesus walks on water. This is uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's believed that near the Sea of Galilee is where um, he gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, so, and there's a ton of other things that happen near or on the Sea of Galilee. It's a prominent place. Well, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. It says that night they caught nothing. Night fishing was common because you would want to sell fish in the morning at the market. And so you'd go fishing at night. And some believers, some believe that uh, this whole passage is talking about how they are running away from God. They're running away from their call. How God called them out of fishing and into being fishers of men. And here they're returning to their old ways. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily uh, warranted because, um, you know, you have Paul who was called to preach the gospel to be a missionary, but he was also a tent maker, and he used the making of tents to provide for his needs, his livelihood. And so as fishermen, you got to understand, most of their time following Jesus, they probably lived off of charitable donations that were given to the ministry of Jesus. But after Jesus was crucified, a lot of that just dried up. And so now they're trying to make ends meet, provide for their families, and so maybe they're just going to try to make a little money to get by. Um, but then also, Jesus told them to wait in Galilee. And so he said, go wait in Galilee. Peter's waiting. Peter has a hard time. He gets kind of bored easy. And so he's like, I'm not just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs. Let me do something with my time while we're waiting on Jesus. And I don't think this is necessarily a problem because this is just active waiting. I think many of us think we should be passively waiting for Christ's return and we're just going to do nothing and hope and pray. But it's like, no, he wants you to actively wait for his return, to be doing things while you wait, to work while you wait. There's a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, where he said, engage in business until I come. That he wants to return finding us Busy for the kingdom, 
doing things, being productive. He doesn't just want us to sit around and wait for his return. He wants us to get some stuff done while we wait for his return. It might be a good thing that Peter is doing what he's doing here. I mean, imagine if he hadn't went fishing, Jesus would have never been able to do this miracle because what he did was do something with what they were already working toward. Well, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, and the disciples say, we will go with you. Peter was just a natural leader, and he was in a fishing business with the sons of Zebedee, John and James, and so they're like, yeah, let's go, and the other guys, they tagged along too. But it says that that night they caught nothing. Now, these are experienced fishermen, but sometimes you just have a bad night, I guess. And so that night they caught nothing. They were disappointed. They were discouraged. I think their failure here uh, in fishing might be the epitome of their failure in loyalty to Jesus at his execution. See, uh, Peter is the famous one that we get onto all the time because he denied Christ three times. And so he's kind of elevated um, as the one who betrayed Jesus or denied Jesus. But you got to understand, the rest of the disciples also scattered when Jesus was arrested. None of them stood by him through his trial and execution. Just remember the, the trial that we looked at last, last week. Not one of his disciples showed up as a character witness for Jesus. Not one of them was like, I'll speak. He's a good guy. Let me tell you about him. Not one of them. They all scattered. They didn't want to get caught up in this execution either. Actually, the apostle John, the one writing this book, um, is the only one who was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He's the only one who kind of remained with Jesus all the way to the end. And so they all failed Jesus, and Peter is just the chief among them. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to him, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples, they came in the boat, like normal people would, dragging the net full of fish. So they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So, so Jesus says, hey, cast the boat. Children, do you have any fish? This would have been like a common greeting. Like, hey, lads, you know, someone who is you know, near the fish market at the time boats would bring in fish. It's kind of a common thing. You would have somebody come by and say, hey, y'all got any fish? Can I get something from you? Or if you've ever been fishing as you're going out and others are coming in, you'll, chat, you'll shout to one another, hey, did you get anything? No, we didn't get anything. So he says, hey, did you get anything? I said, no. And he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And so herein lies the problem. They were throwing the net on the wrong side of the boat. And he says, just throw it on the right side of the boat. You know, that's a joke. You'll catch fish. But, but look, practically, 
I think practically, just a side note, is that we do kind of need to be willing to change our methods at the direction of Jesus. And sometimes we get, we know what we're doing. They're, you know, professional fishermen. For some reason, they don't even question this suggestion. They're just like, okay, wouldn't hurt anything, and they go do it. But oftentimes, we're so stuck in our way of doing things that we don't want to change. And God, I don't want to move from the digital bulletin to the new app. I don't want to do that. I hate technology. We don't want to change. That's a silly example. But we don't want to change. And, and it'd be good for us to listen to the voice of God where he says, maybe, maybe you need to change the way you're doing things. Um, notice, so then they bring in this, this large catch of fish. And notice this is the only miracle that Jesus performs after his resurrection. This is it. It's significant. But this is the only miracle that Jesus performs after his resurrection. And um, notice that Jesus meets them in their moment of failure. He shows up. He shows up on the beach as they are disappointed and discouraged, just experienced a failure, and he meets them right there. You notice Jesus doesn't say, Hey, guys, when you get your act together, come and see me. When you get yourself a little cleaned up, then come and see me. No, he like meets them right at the moment of their failure, and they notice it. John says, look, it's the Lord, he said to Peter. It's the Lord. See, John must have recognized, he, one, John was the first to the tomb, John, uh, whenever, whenever he was told, him and Peter had a foot race, and he wanted you to know he won. And then when they went into the tomb, it says that he was the first to believe that Jesus was raised. And here he's the first to recognize uh, that it's the Lord, but yet Peter's the first to act. He's like, not again. John's not beating me again, so he jumps right in. But they must have been reminded of a a similar event that occurred at the Sea of Galilee, maybe at this exact spot. They're probably having deja vu because in Luke chapter 5, this is how Jesus introduced himself for the first time to the disciples. If you want to flip with me briefly to Luke chapter 5, we're just going to see a few verses. This is where Jesus calls the first disciples verse 4 says and he had finished speaking he said to Simon put out put out from the deep and, and lay your nets for a catch and Simon answered master we toiled all night and took nothing so he's like We've, we haven't caught anything all night it's probably not going to work I know what I'm doing but at your word he says I will let down the nets and when they had done this they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled their boats, both their boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to him, they left everything and followed him. 
So notice Jesus does this intentionally to bring their minds back to that first moment where Jesus met them, performed this miraculous catch of fish, and it was in that moment that Jesus looked at these guys and said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This um, was when Jesus first called them. And now, Jesus is going to renew their call post-resurrection. He's like, that was the first call. You had no idea what you guys were in store for. But I'm going to renew your call in a similar way. And again, you have no idea what's coming. But it's going to be good. Notice also that this time their nets didn't break. The first time, Luke 5, it says their nets were breaking. This time it says that yet their nets did not break. I wonder if there's something to that. You can figure that out on your own time. But in this miracle, Jesus reminds them of who he is and who they are. He reminds them of who he is. I am the one who controls the fish. All things are subject to me. I am the Lord. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who loves you, my children. And he reminds them of who they are. They are the ones he called out to be fishers of men. You're the guys. You're the ones that I chose to take this mission on into the next season. Verse 9, he says, when they got out on land, they saw... Well, first, I just want to point out, just kind of nothing to do with anything, but Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He jumped right into the water, put on his coat. He put, went right into the water. You have to wonder if Simon thought he was going to walk on water. <laughs> you just have to wonder. He's like, it's Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's why he put on his coat. He's like, I'm walking there. You know, maybe you just have to wonder some things that you think about. But in verse nine, he says, then they got out on land. They saw a charcoal fire in place uh, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. You have to wonder why do they list the 153 fish? Why, what's the significance of the number 153? A lot of people have uh, speculated about why they, this number. Look, they're fishermen. This is the largest catch they've ever had. They're going to let you know. There were not 153 fish. There was 153 large fish. And he just wanted to record it for all of time. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, so they come aboard, and uh, Jesus already has um, a fire going. He already has fish and bread cooking on the fire. Where did Jesus get this fish and bread? You have to wonder, did he, did he miraculously provide this fish and bread? You have to wonder that. That had to have been the thought in their mind as they approach. He had us catch all these fish, but when we show up to breakfast, he already has fish on the grill. So now we're reminded of another time where Jesus miraculously made fish and bread appear. This is how you know Jesus was Cajun, because he ate fish for breakfast. Who does that? 
But when was the last time he made fish and bread appear? Well, is at the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 9. And he says, he takes these five loaves of fish, or five fish and two loaves, whatever it is. He takes some fish and loaves, and he miraculously makes it to where it provides for the 5,000 men. There's women and children in addition to that, but he feeds this large crowd with just a few fish and some loaves of bread. And so this brings them right back to that moment near the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did this miracle. And that miracle then was to point them to the teaching of the miracle, which is in John 6, verse 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's reminding them. He's like, what, what we went through, what happened in my ministry, it's not over. It's just beginning. I want to remind you of these things that I taught you so that you'd be prepared to take it into the next season. But I think what's significant about this as we study the fact that he meets us in our failure is in verse 9 there's this small detail where it says when they got out on the land he saw a charcoal fire in place. That word charcoal fire is only uh, used one other time in the Gospel of John and it's in John 18, 18 when, Jesus, when Peter denies Jesus. Verse 15 of chapter 18 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did the other disciples. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door so that the other disciple who had known to the high priest went and spoke with the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said... I am not. Verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. It's the only other time that word's used. Charcoal fire, because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So you had to know that, I don't know about you, if you ever have some, some smells that just bring you right back to particular moments in your life? You smell something that brings you right back, and you have to know when, Paul, when Peter approaches this fire and he gets that smell of the charcoal fire, he has to just be transported right back to that horrible memory whenever he denied his Lord Jesus. But Jesus, by using this charcoal fire to be the setting in which he restores Peter, he's wanting to redeem this memory. He, he chooses to restore him around a same similar charcoal fire as the one which he denied Christ, so that from this point on, when Peter smells the charcoal fire, he remembers the depths of his sin and the heights of God's grace. He smells the fire and he goes, I can't believe 
how sinful I am, and I can't believe how forgiving God is. And so Jesus meets him right in the same setting of his failure. See, Jesus doesn't ignore our failure. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't just act like it never happened. He's aware of it, and he forgives it. That's really the second step in the process of restoration is that Jesus grants us complete forgiveness. Jesus grants us complete forgiveness. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He starts out by saying, Simon, son of John, which is, which is like Peter's full name. So you know it's, it's serious, just like you know it's serious when your mom calls you by your middle name. It's like you know it's serious. This is a serious conversation he's having with Peter here. Calls him by his full name. And he says, do you love me more than these? Is what he starts out with. And so what is the these that he loves him more? Is Jesus saying, that you love, do you love me more than you love these men? That doesn't seem like it would probably be the case because... The Gospels really never totally give us much description of, G, of Peter's love for these other men. And so that probably wouldn't be a big competitor of his love. Well, then he also, maybe it's, do you love me more than the setting, which is the boats and the fish and the nets? Do you love me more than your old way of life? Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than success? Do you love me more than comfort? Do you love me more than the setting of what you're used to and what you're good at? I don't even know that that necessarily is the right way to think about this. I, I think what he's saying is, uh, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Why would he ask such a question like that? Well, it's because when Jesus said, many of you will fall away, Peter says, not me, not me, Lord. I don't know about all these bozos, but I love you more than they do, and I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. He says this in Matthew 26, verse 33. Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is bringing Peter back to that moment and saying, Peter, do you still love me more than all of these guys love me? Jesus is restoring Peter to ministry. And he's asking him to remember his former commitment. 
his former devotion. He's asking Peter, are you still as committed as you once were? You remember how zealous you were to follow me? You remember how, you know, you were just, I love you the most, Jesus. Do you still feel that way? Do you still love me that way? Why is Jesus asking this over and over? I mean, Jesus knows that Peter loves him. Jesus knows Peter loves him. See, Peter is the first one that that Jesus calls to follow him. Peter's the first. Peter witnessed Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine. Peter is one of the three in Jesus' closest discipleship group. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. He was a part of that group. Peter is one of the few who witnesses the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured and he sees Christ as white as snow. I mean, he's... He experiences that with Jesus. Peter is one of the few who gets invited to pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't invite everybody. He invited Peter, James, and John. Hey, guys, my discipleship group, can you come pray with me? Peter was one of those three. Peter, after the resurrection, is who Jesus tells Mary. Jesus tells Mary, hey, go tell the disciples I've raised and Peter. He's the only one he, he personally makes sure Peter hears the news. Peter is the first to preach the gospel at Pentecost after being empowered by the Spirit. Peter is the first to welcome the Gentiles into the Christian church. Jesus knows Peter loves him. Jesus doesn't ask this question because he's wondering. Jesus knows He asked the question because he wants Peter to know. He wants Peter to hear himself affirm his love for Jesus. He wants Peter to reflect on his relationship with Jesus and recommit afresh to Jesus. Do you love me? He asks. Notice he doesn't shame Peter. He doesn't put him on probation period. He He doesn't ridicule him. He just says, do you love me? Do you love me? This is the foundation of a relationship with Jesus. This is uh, the foundation for the Shema, which was the prayer that that, uh, Israelites would pray several times a day, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. With all your strength, love the Lord. Whenever Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, this is what he said. He said to love the Lord, your God. That's why we include it in our mission statement here at Bayou Church. We exist to love God, to love people and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But first and foremost, we exist to love the Lord. Do you love Jesus? See, whenever you're born again, whenever God works on your heart and transforms you and gives you salvation, you're given the ability to love God. This is the mark of someone who is truly saved. Do you love God? Following Jesus is not just about things you know. It's about a love for the Lord that comes from his love for us. 
He says, we love because he first loved us. And so whenever he comes into your life, he then gives you a love for the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Peter here responds and says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, now what's happening here is uh, what a lot of people have pointed out and been taught that because what is true about the original Greek that it was written in is that there's two different words for love being used here. The word agape, which is like this sacrificial divine love, this unconditional love that God has for us, the agape love. And that's what Jesus is asking Peter, do you agape me? But Peter responds to him with phileo, phileo being like a brotherly love, like I love you like a brother. And, um, and so Jesus asks him twice, agape, do you agape, sacrificially love me? Peter responds both times with phileo, I phileo you. The third time, Jesus changes and meets Peter where he's at and says, Peter, do you love me? Phileo, do you, do you, do you love me like a brother? And Peter's grieved by this. And you know everything, you know I love you. And a lot of people teach there's a lot of significance in there. I don't necessarily believe that. I might change my mind one day, but... The reason I don't believe that is because John in his gospel uses these two words interchangeably without much significance to the the greater meaning. What I think everyone would agree on is that um, Peter's response here is different than he's ever responded. That Peter here is a different man. He is more humble. Because previously, as we read in Matthew 26, previously, if he was asked this question, Peter, do you love me? He'd say, yes, I love you. If Jesus said, do you agape me? He'd say, I agape you times 10, Jesus. I agape you more than all the others agape you because I'm with you. I'll never fail you. But you know what, Peter? He has now gone through an experience that has humbled him. And now he approaches Christ and He's no longer willing to boast of the greatest type of love. He kind of goes, man, I love you. I love you, Jesus, yes. <laughs> Only you really know my heart. You know my heart better than I know my heart, Jesus. You know everything. I love you the best that I think I can. Is it the greatest love? I don't know. He's, he's more humble in his approach to responding to Jesus. And verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he was grieved. Why was he grieved? It says, because he said this to him a third time, do you love me? He said a third time. Now, um, Peter would have immediately connected that to the three times that he denied Christ. Like, what's the, what's the significance of three? Why did he ask him three times? Well, That's how many times Peter denied Jesus is three times. How many questions did Jesus ask Peter? Three. How many confessions does Peter give back? Three. How many commissions does Jesus give Peter? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Gives him three commissions. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it all happened on the third appearance of Christ. This is the third appearance of Jesus, it says in verse 14. So, what's the significance of three? The number three biblically represents wholeness. 
um, completion and perfection. What we see here is that he is completely restoring Peter. Totally and completely. The, the point today, he grants us complete forgiveness. It's not partial forgiveness, it's total forgiveness. He asks Peter to give him three affirmations of love to, to counteract the three denials that he previously performed. And that's what Jesus offers us today, complete, complete forgiveness. Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions from my own sake. I will not remember your sins. I'll not remember them. Completely forgiven. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He's like, I'm going to choose to not bring that up ever again. It's complete. Micah 7.19 says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. How deep is the sea? Has anyone ever been to the depths of the sea? The deepest parts of the sea? I'm going to throw them far away. No one can get to them. Completely forgiven. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, how far is the east from the west? Completely. I mean, it's like never, they never touch. It's always a, the east is completely far from the west. He says, I'm going to completely forgive you. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he's like, if you're in Christ, you're completely forgiven. You're completely restored. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we get this? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we know if we come to Christ, like Peter does, humbly come to Christ, that he's completely forgiven us, completely restored us. But he doesn't just forgive us. He then uses us, which is the incredible thing. The third thing in the process of restoration is that Jesus, he assures us of our future. Jesus assures us of our future. Look at verse 18. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus says, look, you're, he, he talks about his death now, which is like a morbid thing to talk about because well, we know from tradition, although the Bible doesn't say this, we know from tradition, it seems like Jesus is alluding to this, is that Peter died um, via martyrdom uh, by the cross, by crucifixion. That uh, he was crucified, but he so did not feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was, so he asked to be crucified upside down. And so tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down. And that's what he's, Jesus seems to be alluding to here, that, that there will be a day where you're led somewhere you do not want to go, 
to a cross. Your hands will be stretched out. And it's in this death that you will glorify God. And so although it's kind of odd that he's talking about his death, what he's saying in this is that he assures Peter that he will remain faithful to the end. He assures Peter, by the power of God, you are going to remain faithful. You might have denied me three times to avoid a cross, but whenever faced with the cross again, I can assure you, you will remain faithful by the power of God and you will endure your cross to glorify me in your death. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Man, will you follow Jesus at the cost of your life? Because a lot of times whenever we talk about the future that God has for us, we say things like he has a wonderful future for you. He has a beautiful plan for you. It's all going to be good for you if you're in the Lord. Do we ever think about the purpose of God for our life is to go to a cross? Literally? That was the purpose. That was the future that Peter had by God's design. So what he's saying here is, yes, I have a future for you. But the thing that's amazing about the future is knowing that you're going to remain faithful. No matter what persecution you face. And we've got to wrestle with, am I willing to follow Jesus to death? This is not the type of love, as he says, do you love me? Do you love me? It's kind of weird for men to talk about that way. Like, do I love Jesus? Because I'm a man, he's a man. How do, we, how do we think about that? But it's not like, do you love me like, do you love me like a boyfriend? This is, do you love me like the sacrificial love that a soldier has when he leaves his family to go and defend his country? This is the type of love that a mom has as she sacrifices for her children. This is the type of love that a dad has who sacrifices for his family. This is the type of love that a first responder has as they sacrifice to, in their love for their community. This is a self-sacrificial, radical love. Peter is called to die for Christ. Would I be willing to do the same? How can I glorify Christ in my death? What we see here is that Peter gets totally and completely restored. Um, uh, restoration is the title of the sermon, and, and Webster's definition of restoration is bringing back a former to a former position or condition. Uh, so restoration, according to Webster, is you know you bring it back to a former condition. We have people who restore classic cars, and you're not trying to make it something different than it was. You're trying to bring it back to what it was. I, I one of my first jobs was working at a, a construction company who restored his company who restored historic homes, and so we had to go buy original plans and use the closest possible materials so that we could restore it back to want, what it once was. 
the idea of restoration. But that's not really necessarily the biblical definition of restoration. A more biblical uh, definition would be when God takes something broken and makes it brand new. When God takes something broken and makes it brand new, the process of receiving back more than what has been lost, such that the final state is greater than the original condition. And so he's like, I'm not just going to bring you back to your former state, Peter. I'm going to make you into a better person. I'm going to restore you completely. I believe that this is Peter's public restoration. And Jesus, Peter had previously, to this moment, had private interactions with Jesus. And I, I think, personally, that they reconciled privately. I think Jesus had privately restored Peter. But here is his public restoration. I think most of us would be content with just the, the private thing. Most of us are content with just getting to heaven. I, if I can just get to heaven, just let me in the doors, and I'd be content with that. But Jesus wants so much more. He has better plans. He doesn't just want to save you. He wants to restore you to usefulness. He gives Peter these three commissions. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. This is the idea of taking care of the flock of God. Jesus was the good shepherd, and now he's passing on this responsibility to Peter. You're going to be responsible for feeding the church, the word of God, and caring for the church. So feed them and tend them. He's calling him back into full-time ministry, vocational ministry. And sometimes God calls you to full-time vocational ministry. Are you called to full-time vocational ministry? I don't think we should all just assume that that is for someone else. I don't think we should all just assume that there's someone else God calls to, to, uh, to be pastor or to be a missionary. Maybe God's calling you to. Maybe today he's calling you to do that and he wants you to respond to that call like Peter did. But for a lot of us, he's just calling us to be useful in our day-to-day lives. And we can be assured that he will restore us to usefulness. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is going to assure us of our future. John later wrote, the Gospel of John, the writer here, author, he later wrote in his letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's like, I want you to know I want you to be assured that you have eternal life. I want you to be assured that you're going to remain faithful to the end, not because of your faithfulness, but because of my faithfulness. What is our role in all of this? Look at the last verse, verse 19. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. What is our role? Just follow Jesus. The word here is uh, present imperative. What he's saying literally is keep following me. Keep on following me. What's our role? Just keep on following Jesus. We're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to fail. We're going to fall on our face. And he's going to meet us right there. And he's going to forgive us completely. And then he's going to reassure us of our future. Just keep following me. 
I got you. I got you. This is the invitation to every one of us, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how great your failures have been, Jesus is inviting you to be restored. Just simply follow Jesus. Just simply follow Jesus. He restores us. I think what Peter experienced is what is said of the good shepherd in Psalm 23. He's having breakfast with the good shepherd here, and he says uh, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And here Peter experiences this beautiful restoration of his soul so that later when he's writing a letter in 1 Peter, he can say in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, and after this you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Some of you have walked with Jesus and failed him in some way or another. All of us have failed the Lord in some way or another. Um, today, Jesus is calling you back. He's calling you back. Do you need restoration today? Well, come to him. Come to him. Father in heaven, I pray that you would uh, just speak to us in this moment, that you'd draw us back, that your spirit would move among us to just, to just draw, to invite restoration. God, all of us really have failed you in some way or another. And uh, I just pray that we can be in, be encouraged that no matter how great our failure is, you meet us right there and you invite us to receive forgiveness and you restore us completely and you assure us of our future. And so Lord, I pray that you would do that among us today, that we'd surrender to you, that we would receive your forgiveness. God, that we would just keep on following you. Give us faith today, I pray in Jesus' name.